Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And we are going to have what I think is going to be one of the most interesting podcasts that I've done recently today. I have with me Christian Perez, and he founded not only the most uniquely named law firm, but one of the most uniquely focused law firms that I've come across recently. It's called Thinking, sorry for my Texanese, legal. That's Think Keen. So Christian, first of all, with butchering all of that, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you for inviting me, Tom. I'm very, very happy to be here. So I was wondering if you could detail for us a little bit about your professional background and how that led you to found this most unique law firm. Well, thank you very much. Well, again, my name is Christian Perez-Fond. I'm an attorney by trade, and I think for a big part of my life, I was a corporate slash transactional M&A attorney before I started drifting to the world of compliance. I've been a partner and work in big multinational law firms and have advised clients in small, medium-sized, and big transactions in different industries, but mostly in healthcare, natural resources, and technology. So after I did my stint in big law in 2008, I decided to give my career a spin and took an in-house job at Baxter International, a huge multinational healthcare company. And I was in charge of supporting the emerging markets organization within the Latin America region, as well as several manufacturing plants. That transition happened just right about when compliance was starting to pick up steam and was becoming, you know, what we now call the new normal. I think that at the time that I joined Baxter, my workload was about 10% compliance related and then 90% business related. But by the time that I left Baxter five years later, things had changed dramatically. And I think my workload at that time was about 65% compliance and 35 day-to-day business related. And the truth is, you know, I really enjoyed that transition. And I think that one of the reasons why I enjoyed that transition was because that renewed focus on compliance required business lawyers to think more holistically about the business and truth be told, to get more involved in the business. So one of the things that I realized early on in this transition was that Developing a compliance mindset required drilling down to really, really understand the business. Uh, In essence, to become a better compliance professional, you have to become a better business person. Because, I mean, if you think about it, oftentimes when compliance people are asking questions from the business, they're really not asking, you know, compliance or ethical questions, but sometimes and most of the times, These are business questions. So things as, what is our expected profit in this transaction? Are we selling product below cost? You know, how did we get this partner? Do they have the necessary expertise or financial backing to perform under the contract? So the more business savvy that a compliance professional is, the better he will be. So that was the reason why I give this explanation is because unlike many people in compliance who come from a prosecutorial background, I come from the background of I was the guy making the deals happen. So that, I think, changes a little bit the approach that I give to my practice and the way that I provide advice. If I can interrupt you there, what you just described is very much my experience. I went from a trial lawyer background in-house doing transactional work, and it really struck me as well 
how much I needed to understand the business just to do a contract for these guys. But I probably should have said this in the introduction. We met at a uh, compliance conference in Miami, and you really talked about the use of data analytics and how your firm is really, I think, for law firms on the cutting edge of incorporating data analytics, compliance, and law together into a very unique package. So how did you kind of make that next step? Well, it's interesting because, again, background comes into play. So in terms of my personal background, my dad's an engineer and my mom is an economist. So I've always been very numeric in terms of my formation. I think that, you know, my mom was, she had an IBM XT and she was doing Lotus 1, 2, 3 for a long time. So the use of spreadsheets and numbers to understand things has always been interesting to me. So, the, you know, after I started getting more involved in compliance and then I joined Olympus and you know, held a regional compliance officer role, I started really trying to understand what is the role of data. And I think that when people think about data analytics, they look at it as some form of, you know, big AI that's going to automatically pinpoint problems. And the truth is that data analytics has to be at the core of any compliance program. So when you ask basic questions, such as, you know, what is my organization made of? How many employees do we have per region? Those little things can tell you how you should be communicating compliance policies, how you should be doing trainings so that you can be effective in what you do. So I think that the way that we use and the way we view data is as fuel. It is the fuel that moves the compliance engine. If we look at compliance, of course, as a cycle and not as a process with a specific end beginning. So that is what we incorporate in the advice that we give. So we look at, we have a very holistic vision from a design standpoint. So when we're looking at creating a compliance program and also when we're moving into a monitoring evaluation and then rethinking again whether we need to do changes to our compliance program. So you've just actually given us the title for this episode, Data as Fuel. That was brilliant. And I will tell you now I'm going to steal that line and I'm going to use it. I will cite to you, but it's going to be unfetteredly used in the compliance community. That's really great. And that really leads to, where I interrupted you with that, how does this put thinking legal really on a cutting edge of what I see the regulators moving towards, but what you see as the businesses actually demanding? How are you able to incorporate all of those? Well, first of all, the interesting thing is that most of the data that's being used for compliance purposes is already there. It's not new data that we have to go and get. The data is there from the business side, so you just need to learn how to aggregate it, how to look for it, and then how to plug it in. Because I think first thing is we need to understand what data is. Data is just a set of values with respect to some pre-established qualitative or quantitative variables, which you process to extract information. But you need to know what variables you're going to be using and how you're going to extract that information, because otherwise these are just numbers. So you have to know what you're looking for before you start collecting that data. And depending on the industry, that can be as simple as how many calls are we getting from our hotline? Uh, Where are we getting these calls from? 
or if you're starting to get more complicated, for instance, in the healthcare industry, you know, how many interactions with healthcare professionals or with foreign government officials are we having per year? But again, I think the thing that's the most important to understand is what is your industry and what is your company doing? Once you understand that, then you can start asking questions and developing those matrix to go and develop your own program. And then you have to look at whether you need to look at what's called structured data or unstructured data. And that is what we do as a company. We help you understand where you need to go and get that information to incorporate that into the compliance lifecycle. Kristen, your law firm lists three key practice areas, mergers and acquisitions, transactional work, and compliance work. I was wondering if you could give some examples, if possible, about how Thinkeen has used its data proficiency in each one of those areas to help a general counsel, a corporation, or a lawyer move forward with one of those types of projects. Well, one of the things that I think makes us different is the fact that I am a um, civil law and common law trained lawyer. So I practice law in Latin America throughout different jurisdictions for many, many years. And sometimes people feel in the context of cross-border transactions that there are concepts that you can immediately translate, but they're not necessarily translatable. And sometimes you have to be a little creative to achieve the same results. So let me give you an example. In the U.S., it is very common for us to use the concept of an escrow in the context of an M&A acquisition to leave some money as a guarantee. And the escrow as a legal figure does not exist in most of Latin American countries or the civil law countries. But the performance bonds is a concept that's widely used in different industries. So sometimes you can use and you can advise a client and tell them you have this avenue that is not necessarily what you're used to using, but you can use that and obtain the same effect, the same effect when you're thinking about a cross-border transaction. So I think that Different dual view makes a difference in terms of the type of advice that we provide in terms of cross-border acquisitions. So in terms of M&A, I recall at the Miami conference, you were able to generally describe how you were able to bring to the bear a data analytics approach on what was originally or at least appeared to be a mergers and acquisition legal assignment. Can you generally describe that type of project? Sure. So one of the things that we do when we start looking at an acquisition when we're brought in, you know, at the beginning is we have to understand what kind of industry and what are the data points that we need to do to attack on an acquisition on a due diligence phase. So, and that is something that is going to vary depending on the specific jurisdiction that you're doing because of legal requirements and the unique nuances of each jurisdiction. So to give you an example, in Argentina, the HCPs have tremendous power over buying decisions. So unlike in most other countries, if an HCP says, I want to prescribe, let's say, Citromax, which is the brand name for acetpromazine for Pfizer, and there's a generic available, the pharmacy has to fulfill the brand product and not the generic. So that creates nuances in the sense that it's an area of risk so you have to look at how many interactions does your company or your target company have with a particular ACP, you know, how many prescriptions a year he is doing for you, how much of your revenue is coming out of that ACP. 
And those are just, you know, related to the specific reality of Argentina. And I can look at other examples, for instance, in the case of Mexico, where most of the purchases are done through public tender process. So because we know where the touch points are, we're able to incorporate them in the due diligence process and ask the right questions and the right information to be able to tell our clients this is an area of risk or this is an area that needs mitigation and should you go ahead with that acquisition. So who is the person that would bring you in on a project? Would it be a general counsel or frankly, would it be a chief financial officer? Well, generally it's the general counsel. The general counsel, because when you're doing due diligence in the context of compliance, one of the things that most people are concerned, particularly from an FCPA perspective, is maintaining some form of privilege even though we know that it's being eroded, I think, as we speak everywhere in the world. But the general counsel is usually the one who's going to engage us in order to maintain privilege in the due diligence phase. So what is the reaction when you bring the message of the wedding merger of data, legal, and compliance to a chief compliance officer or a general counsel? Is that something they understand, something they perhaps don't understand, but need understand they need to know? Or... Do you just get a blank stare? Well, I think it depends. Usually the chief compliance officer or the compliance responsible person is going to be cheering all the way because he feels that he's being supported. And sometimes it's a bit more difficult to get across the message when you have a general counsel that doesn't have expertise in the compliance field. But I feel that day after day, general counsels are becoming more and more savvy in terms of compliance and are asking questions. I think the other thing that they, or most of my clients appreciate is, and I think that comes from my experience as being an in-house lawyer, is that I try to give advice. I know that sounds very simple, but one of the things that I found when I was in-house is that you would ask your outside counsel for advice, and then they would give you a legal opinion full of disclaimers and you know, full of recitations of the law, which I knew but I've never got advice, which is, what would you do? What would you recommend I do? And you can qualify your opinion however you want. So I think my mantra in, in thinking legal has always been, we don't provide legal advice, but we'd rather provide business advice with legal content. Because we understand that whether we're acting in a legal capacity or advising on compliance, we are there to support the business because compliance is a business support function. So I am located in Houston and uh, the energy capital of the world. The practice in Houston that faces South tends to be Mexico, largely because of energy, but also because of the geographic proximity. My experience is Miami, however, really opens up to the fullness of Latin America, Brazil, Argentina, and you name the countries. Would that be a fair assessment? And is that an integral part of the practice of your firm as well? I think so. Although I think that in the age of the internet and more mobility, we're seeing industries switch places like never before. So uh, Baxter, the company that I used to work for, the headquarters for Latin America and Canada were in Miami. They're no longer there. The, you know, operations have been relocated back to headquarters in Deerfield. HP moved their Latin American operations to Houston because they say it's the hub. And with you know all the telecom abilities, you can basically go to the region from anywhere. 
So I think that the more that we advance in terms of technology, the more globalized that we become. I think that at some point, what you mentioned was right. And banking, healthcare, even construction was big in Latin America based out of Miami, but that's shifting. So I think that we're going to be seeing more and more companies manage Latin American operations out of their headquarters or other locations. Christian, perhaps we could end with this question. Where do you see the intersection of law, compliance, and data moving? Is it something that you think will become, if not more sophisticated, more ubiquitous with a greater understanding and the need for the services of people like yourself and thinking legal? I think it's going to continue to evolve. I mean, it's, it's changed so much over the past five years, not to mention 10 years. You look at it, I have my two sons in college, and one of them is majoring in business in Indiana University. And a major in data analytics is already being offered at the Kelly Business School. So I think that everyone is starting to understand the importance of data analytics. I think that where we need to go is not necessarily where it's just completely automating processes, but really creating more education and more awareness about the importance to the importance of understanding data so that you can extract the right information. Because the problem is that when you don't have the right data entry points, you can get information that is completely, completely wrong. And we don't want that. We want information to be valuable as a fuel and also as a decision-making tool for people. So things are going to continue to evolve. I think that practitioners need to understand data. They need to understand Excel spreadsheets. They need to understand how to share data because I think that the big part of what we do with data is benchmarking. So I think the more information that we can share among the industry, the better that we all will be in. So, Christian, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if any of our listeners wanted more information on you or the firm, where could they go to find that out? Well, they can go to thinkinglegal.com, which is our website. We are also active on Twitter. Our handle is thinkingl. At thinkingl, we are also on Instagram. Not very active, though, because most of what we do is meeting with clients, not so much showing where we are or what we're doing. And I always write, I'm very active writing in LinkedIn, so you can find my articles and my notes right there as well. So this has been a fascinating exploration of really what I think is a very innovative and cutting-edge law firm. Christian, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you so much to you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. If you're a compliance professional looking for a convenient and effective way to fulfill your continuing education requirements, go to fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses and choose from four hour-long training packages that will keep you current. That's fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses.